Happy Friday morning, Four Oaks Church. It's September 9th, and we are winding down this week of Romans Rewind. So this coming Sunday, of course, we're going to be in Romans 12, which begins the quote-unquote practical section of the book. But before going there, we've spent um, several days this week trying to kind of clean up from Romans chapter 11, specifically looking at the issue of how are we to think about the modern day uh, nation state of Israel, uh, particularly in light of the covenant to Abraham and the divine promises made that Israel would inherit the promised land. And, and the reason we're asking these questions is that Paul has just unfolded for us in Romans chapter 11, the fact that at the end of the age, um, all Israel is going to be saved. In other words, as a corporate entity in mass, ethnic Jews will come flooding into the church through faith in Jesus Christ. But knowing that, then how are we to think about um, the current state of Israel, the nation state of Israel? And, and let me just review what we said the last two days. Uh, the first day we talked about this in depth. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it where we said that, and this is sort of based on a teaching from John Piper, which I um, affirm and concur with, where he, where he talks about this idea that, that Israel, um, well, in fact, he, 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 let's read the verse first and then talk about what Piper says. Romans eleven twenty eight. as regards the gospel, they, meaning the ethnic Jews, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So there, there's two realities there, right? Uh, one, um, God is going to remember ethnic Israel because of his covenant with Abraham, but at the present time, they are still cut off. They are enemies of God. So how are we to think about what's happening over in the Middle East right now? And, and essentially, Piper says that, that disobedient Israel, covenant-breaking Israel, um, has no claim upon the covenant promises that God has made. Only true Israel, only those who have faith in Christ can make that rightful claim. Now there will be a day, one day, when there'll be a massive influx of Jews into the kingdom, uh, at which point God will fulfill his covenant blessings to them, and not just to them, but to, to the all of church, because we're all the true Israel, which will not just mean um, possession of the promised land, but really, which will be, which will usher, but will in a sense be the, the ushering in of the kingdom of Christ over the whole world. And so all that to say, he would say that the Israel does not have a current divine right um, to claim the land. They might have an historical right um, and certainly ought to be governed by the laws of humanitarian um, goodwill and peace and all those things that come with being a nation state. But to claim an absolute divine right um, would not be correct from a biblical perspective. And correspondingly then, um, we ought not to think as evangelicals that we are giving a blanket approval towards every single thing that the nation state of Israel would do, although we might admire them as a nation uh, and resonate with their stand on democracy and their historical right to the land, um, they still should be judged by other biblical standards of peace and justice and love, both in the way that they're treated and in their treatment of their neighbors. Now, yesterday, we went a little further upstream and said, how did we get there? How did Piper get there? And we talked about the, the, the two dominant 
um, modes of prophetic interpretation, the, the covenantal framework versus the dispensational framework. And the covenantal framework essentially says that, that, that there is not two distinct futures for ethnic Israel and the church. There is one future um, in Christ, in the church, through faith in Christ. And the promises that were made to ethnic Israel become the promises to the church. And we, we see that over and over in the way that the scripture writers oftentimes take Old Testament passages that were intended for ethnic Israel and they apply them to the church, i.e. Acts 15 and Amos chapter 9. The dispensational framework more says that there are two distinct futures for ethnic Israel and the church, and that the promises made to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament will be fulfilled literally in an ethnic Israel nation state, whether it's the claim of the land, the rebuilding of the temple, and the offering of the sacrifices, um, etc. And I tried to make a compelling case that while this is not a matter of Christian orthodoxy, that the covenantal framework, I think, is closer to um, and more reflective of what the Bible teaches. Now, having said that, I, I understand that for most <clears throat> Christian Americans for the last 150, 200 years have been raised in a dispensational framework, which basically says that um, essentially that, that the church will be raptured before the tribulation, that there will be seven years of intense persecution, that the Antichrist will emerge um, and uh, to persecute um, those who are remaining, those who are come to no faith in Christ in the tribulation, that all Israel will be saved. There will be a, a worldwide revival um, through the Jewish nation state in the, in the city of Jerusalem. There'll be the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of the sacrifices, and then Christ will come to establish his thousand-year reign. And I want to just talk about one part of that to say that I think there are other biblical alternatives that we want to consider. And again, all of this is not so meant to push a particular eschatological framework onto you, but it's to encourage you to go to the scriptures and to learn these things for yourself. Because many just assume the prophetic end times timeline that I just laid out um, without really necessarily knowing the biblical background. And, and I want to examine this, one part of this that I think will be really helpful um, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to read the passage that is most commonly cited by dispensationalists as teaching this idea of a secret rapture. Now, a little bit of background here. For the first 1,800 years of church history, uh, the church has essentially taught um, what we've always affirmed, that Jesus is coming back again, that there's going to be a second coming of Christ. Uh, Christ came the first time to die for sins. He's coming back a second time to judge the living and the dead, to raise, um, raise up um, everyone to, to, to bring the church back to him in glory. He's coming again. Well, about 200 years ago or so, um, there began to be, as part of dispensational teachings on the end times, and we don't have time to get into the backdrop of where the, even that came from, this idea that there was actually not going to be an, an, a second coming of Christ, but two comings of Christ, okay, for a total of three. There's the first coming, which we know about. There's the second coming at the end of the world. 
but then there's one in between called the rapture, and this would be a secret uh, return of Christ. And this was this would be the time where the church um, Christians would be snatched up. Um, that's where the word rapture comes from, and spared the atrocities of the tribulation, the seven years of of terror, okay, um, and and suffering, and where the antichrist comes and rules. And the most common passage used to back that up, at least the 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 rapture part, would be First Thessalonians four thirteen and following. Let me read that passage. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Those you may not. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me start over. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, arch, archangel, <laughs> archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So most for most of church history, this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, was understood to be referring to the second coming, which is to be this very public event where Jesus appears in the air, there's a loud trumpet and shouts, and um, every voice and eye will see, etc. And where those who are here on earth will be snatched up into heaven to meet those who have already been raised to life, who have already uh, gone on to heaven uh, before us. Well, 200 years or so ago, some th there was this idea that Maybe what's being talked about here is not the actual second coming of Christ, but is in fact um, the the rapture, and and the word rapture comes from verse seventeen when it says "will be caught up together." Rapsura it means to be snatched away, and the idea here is that this is not speaking of the second coming. This is speaking of the rapture. Now, now what what are we to make of that? Well, I think one. A couple things. One, I think it it clearly goes against the basic um, on the level surface meaning of the text. Right? It seems very clear that Paul is talking here, okay, about a very public event, not a secret one. I mean, notice there's the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the the sound of the trumpets of God, and you might even see. Uh, though some who affirm that this is teaching the rapture would say, well, this is something only heard or seen by believers. But again, this seems to sort of um, beg the obvious that, that that's not what's being described here. And that word snatched away just, again, doesn't describe something secret. It just literally means to be caught up. Okay. Now, obviously, if it was that simple, um, everyone would agree with me, right? But, but we might want to ask then. Then, what has led people to believe that this is speaking about a rapture, a secret rapture? Well, it comes from again that basic 
uh, delineation between covenant theology and dispensational theology. Again, dispensational, uh, I mean, covenant theology sees this continuity between Israel and the church and interprets the Bible accordingly, where dispensationalism sees this radical distinction and future. And because of that hermeneutic, uh, when not only are Old Testament passages interpreted literally uh, apart in, as being fulfilled in an ethnic Israel, uh, uh, distinct from the church, then when we get to books like Revelation, those passages are then um, interpreted accordingly to sort of support that hermeneutic. And so in a lot of ways, what ends up happening is that due to other passages in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, um, because of what dispensationalists believe those passages teach, then they will look back on 1 Thessalonians 4 and say, well, in order for those passages to be true, um, then this passage must be interpreted in a particular way. And so because of their hermeneutic, they would, they would very much read Revelation in a very literal sense and try to understand those events and, and be pointing to the idea that the church has to have been gone before this, before this seven years of tribulation starts. Hence, here, here is a text that supports this idea of a secret rapture. Again, can't get into all this today, except I, I want to point us to one thing. When you look at Revelation chapter 1, and as John is writing, I think he gives us a clue as to how we are to interpret the book of Revelation and, and how we have to be very careful that we don't put too much weight into what is an otherwise apocalyptic literature. So, so look, look at Revelation 1.1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. Okay, well, that word revelation, which we get the title revelation, literally means apocalypto. And that word translated, again, literally means to reveal by signs and symbols. So apocalyptic literature, which was very popular at the time that John was writing this letter, uh, was meant to use imagery, numbers, signs, symbols to sort of paint a picture of different themes, okay, of different um, sort of trajectories that, um, that were observed in the natural world. They weren't meant to have necessarily a specific one-to-one -one correspondence um, with something that was actually happening. It described actual events, but in a symbolic way. So for example, something like the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, we know that seven was a symbolic number in apocalyptic and Jewish literature. It just means for a particular season, or it can mean a sign of completeness. Um, things like the mark of the beast, okay, which dispensationalists would interpret literally. Um, in the book of Revelation, for example, in Revelation 13 and 14, it seems to describe this idea of the mark of the beast as contrasted to the mark of God, okay, um, being sealed on people's foreheads. And when you read it in the context, it seems to be talking about this seal or the mark of God is the Holy Spirit, right? And so what is the mark of the beast? It's not having the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's having the, the, the seal of man. 
And so th these are just a couple of examples I, I want to just kind of put out there to show you that there's a number of ways of interpreting apocalyptic literature, but how you interpret those and how you interpret um, the Old Testament um, will come to bear on texts like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I think when we read things in their context and when we let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament, okay, then we have, I think, a much sort of clearer path, okay? Maybe not clear about the things we want to have clarity on, like how's it all going to end and what's the timeline going to be and those sorts of things. But we have clarity on the most important things, which is Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is returning. Um, he will be visible when he returns. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. He will judge the living and the dead. He will raise his people to join him in heaven, uh, to experience eternity with him forever. Those are the very most important things. Those are the things, as, as, as your pastor, that I want to encourage you to cling to and not to become diverted by this scenario or that scenario. At the end of the day, none of us probably are going to get it right in the way that we think about how things are going to end. But let's focus on the things that we do know. Micah 6, 8, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. All right, we'll be back at it again next Monday. So glad you've joined us. Listen, if you have any questions, um, and these have been a little longer devotionals this week, a little more detailed and nuanced. If you have any questions about any of these things, just email me. Paul.Gilbert at fouroakschurch.com. We'll see if we can work those into the rotation and answer some of those questions. All right, let me pray. Lord, give us wisdom, give us discernment, and, and please, Lord, give us your grace. Lord, we don't presume to know the mind, your mind, Lord, and we can't predict the future. But there are certain things that you've revealed to us that you want us to be sure and certain about. Let us place our hope in those. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend.